Hi guys, welcome to the CCWSA podcast. I'm co-founder, COO, Stan Campbell. And today we have two special guests with us. We have our National Trial Counsel, Don West, and also our great friend in the business and industry, Andrew Branca from Law of Self-Defense. Today we're gonna to be covering a couple of topics uh, to start off with. Um, it's part of my responsibility to make sure that you guys are armed with information. Um, I'm able to do that because I surround myself with experts and um, some things that we need to touch upon for the, the new members and the other members need to be reinforced with this information. So uh, we brought Andrew Branca in today to really break down a few things for us and have a great conversation with Don West. Uh, to start off with, um, Andrew, welcome again. Uh, Pleasure. Thanks, thanks for coming down. We're going to discuss what always needs to be hit home. Um, we push all the members toward uh, the easiest, most articulable way of understanding the elements of self-defense. And I'm going to let our friend Andrew take over. Sure. So uh, in a nutshell, and it doesn't matter uh, what jurisdiction you're in, what American jurisdiction you're in, all 50 states, Washington, D.C., Guam, Puerto Rico, uh, they all have their own self-defense statutes and jury instructions and court decisions, but it all boils down to the same five elements of self-defense. That just reflects how old and well-established self-defense law is in American law. And those five elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. And innocence basically means you can't have been the initial aggressor in the fight, right? Self-defense is to defend yourself against someone else's aggression. Uh, imminence means the threat you're defending yourself against is either actually occurring or immediately about to occur. It's not something that happened in the past. It's not a speculative future threat that may never happen. Proportionality involves the intensity of the force involved. Generally speaking, you can only use deadly force in self-defense if you're facing a deadly force threat. Deadly force in self-defense. Avoidance has to do with whether or not you're in one of the 11 states that imposes a legal duty to retreat before you can use deadly force in self-defense. Most states don't. Most states are stand your ground states. And then reasonableness. Uh, that's really twofold. You have to genuinely, in good faith, believe you need to act in self-defense. That's a subjective belief inside your head. But that belief also has to be objectively reasonable. A theoretical, reasonable and prudent person in the same circumstances would have shared that subjective belief. So an irrational belief mm. to act in self-defense is not sufficient for that element of reasonableness. And the prosecutor's job, when you're claiming self-defense to justify your use of force against someone else, their job, and they're well aware of this, is they have to disprove any one of those five elements beyond a reasonable doubt. Because the elements are cumulative, they're all required. If anyone is missing, if anyone is disproven beyond a reasonable doubt, mm -hmm. you don't have a claim of self-defense because you're missing a required ingredient, a required element. Um, and the prosecutor knows this, by the way. He knows he doesn't have to disprove your claim of self in its entirety. Mm -hmm. You could have four of those five elements 100%, but if you're missing any one of them, your self-defense claim collapses. And he knows that going in. So from a prosecutor's perspective, each of those five elements is his target of attack. Gotcha. Any one of them he can defeat, your claim of self-defense goes away. And that's a problem in self-defense because self-defense is, it's a legal defense of confession mm -hmm. and avoidance. Mm -hmm. Because when you claim self-defense, you're not saying, it's not like an alibi defense. You're not saying it wasn't me, I was someplace else, right? right. I had nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. You're saying the opposite of that. You're saying, yeah, I shot that guy, mm -hmm. I killed him. So you're confessing not to a crime per se, but you're confessing to the underlying conduct that is the basis for the, the use of force charge. I shot that guy, I killed him, but I did it in lawful self-defense. And mm -hmm. you did it intentionally. Intentionally. Right? right, so it's not an accident. Yes. Mm -hmm. So accident is a different legal defense. You can mm -hmm. raise the legal defense of accident, like you can raise the legal defense of self-defense, but it's, it's, it's a very difficult legal defense when, you're, when guns are involved, mm -hmm. because guns are inherently dangerous instruments. Almost any mishandling of a gun that results in someone's death is gonna be considered reckless conduct, sure. which is enough for criminal liability all by itself. Just to clarify the, the one point about the uh, intentional act, it might be that you intentionally shot with the purpose of defending yourself, not that you intentionally killed the person. It could be the consequence of it, right? but that's not necessarily your purpose. And, and it ought not be your purpose. I mean, the, whether or not this aggressor actually dies is not the mission if you're acting in self-defense. Your mission is to neutralize the threat against mm -hmm. you or against other innocent people. In fact, I would argue that it's generally preferable if they don't die. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if consistent with safety, consistent with neutralizing the threat, they don't die as a result of, of your use of deadly force. 
Because if they die, your potential liability, legal liability, goes up tremendously. Now you're looking at a murder charge or a manslaughter charge. Correct. If they simply don't die, those things are off the table because those criminal charges require that someone died mm -hmm. as a result of your conduct. So if we could have, you know, Star Trek taser guns that just, you know, made people fall over unconscious instead of dying, that would be preferable. We don't really live in that world. Mm -hmm. uh, guns are, as I say, this is a guy who's carried a gun every day for personal protection. He's carrying a gun right now for personal protection. Uh, a gun is very rarely the answer to the problem you're mm -hmm. facing. When it is the answer to the problem, it's generally the only answer Absolutely. Uh, to the problem. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I did interrupt you. You were talking about reasonableness and you talked about subjective reasonableness. Right. That wasn't the whole story though. Well, it's subjective and objective. I think I was talking about confession and avoidance. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're confessing to the underlying conduct and you're seeking to avoid legal liability through the justification of self-defense. Because if it was self-defense, it's simply not a crime. It's, it's justified conduct. In that sense, self-defense is what we call a perfect defense. It doesn't just mitigate your legal liability. There is no legal liability. Mm -hmm. The conduct simply shooting that person, which would normally be unlawful, is simply not a crime if it meets the conditions, the five elements of mm -hmm. self-defense. But the risk there, of course, is because it is a legal defense of confession and avoidance. If the prosecution can destroy your claim of self-defense by disproving one of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt, then you have the confession and you don't have the avoidance. You don't have the legal defense. And so essentially all you've done then is provide the prosecution with a confession and that's an easy walk away conviction for the prosecutor. So in, in a normal criminal case, the prosecutor has to prove you guilty of the crime, charged right beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, sir. But in a self-defense case, you've effectively conceded to that if you don't have the legal justification of self-defense. Hey guys, so also, you know, the reason why CCW Safe, um, we hold so close to us the five elements of self-defense by Andrew Branca, you know, he, he mentioned a self-defense claim, you know, placing a self-defense claim um, by a judge, correct? Um, that's also the criteria that we go off of to cover you. Um, it does not matter what you do as long as you are aligned in, uh, with that self-defense claim, you know. Um, that's the importance of us being prejudiced toward covering you guys, servicing you, and making sure that we're there for you for the long run. Um, one thing that Andrew mentioned, you know, uh, he talked about stand your ground states. Don, can you cover that a little bit to give us an understanding of what that really means and um, duty to retreat as well? Well, I can touch on that. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew already did when he was talking about the element of avoidance. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of states, I think it's, well, you said there were 11 that 11. have duty to retreat, so right. that means 39, if I've done my math, that has a form of stand your ground, right. which means there is no legal duty to retreat before using deadly force if you are in fact facing an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. So that's one thing that, the, that you don't have to worry about um, tactically or legally, although we'll talk, I hope, more about whether it makes sense to actually stand your ground mm -hmm. if you have any other options. But legally, um, you have the right to confront that force that you're being threatened with with your own proportional level of force. Yeah, so from a legal perspective, what it does is take that element of avoidance off the table as a target of attack for the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So instead of there being five elements a prosecutor can attack now, there's only four because avoidance has been removed. That's obviously good for the defender. Uh, as you suggest, from a, a real world practical perspective, if it's possible for you not to get into a gunfight simply by retreating from the fight, if mm -hmm. you can do that consistent with safety, obviously we ought not be getting into gunfights we don't need to be getting into. Absolutely, and you know, that, that leads us into, you know, some of the, uh, or a lot of the problems that we have with the members is, you know, knowing when to display their weapon in self-defense. So can we kind of, you know, cover that as well? So the moment you make someone else aware that you have a gun and you're making them aware of that to change their behavior, which is what we're doing. When we say, mm -hmm. stay, stay back, I have a gun, mm -hmm. right? Their, their behavior is something that's frightening you. You're making them aware you have a gun to change that behavior. Arguably, you've checked all the boxes for a charge of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Because the crime of assault has to do with putting someone else in reasonable fear of imminent harm. Mm -hmm. Aggravated assault, putting someone in reasonable fear of deadly force harm. With a deadly weapon, you're telling them you have a gun. <clears throat> now, whether or not a prosecutor would bring that charge is often largely a function of policies within the prosecutor's department. It's largely at their discretion, but you are putting yourself at risk for that charge. They may not bring it, but you're potentially at risk. 
So I, I generally urge people not to be engaging in that conduct unless they have a very good reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. Personally, it's hard for me to imagine circumstances in which I would make someone aware that I have a gun unless the circumstances were such that I, w- I would be prepared to use that gun in self-defense. Actually, Now, of course, once you present the gun, circumstances often change and you don't need to use it. So this is not a reflexive draw the gun and shoot. Uh, often the bad guy sees the gun, decides they brought you know, a fist to a gunfight and they're not interested and they run away and that's perfect. You just, you just, mm-hmm. you just won that fight without having to fire a shot. Um, but when you did all that, you did incur the risk of facing a felony charge of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. In most mm-hmm. jurisdictions, that's good for 10 to 20 years wow. in prison once the gun sentencing enhancement is added on. Yes. Um, so I would, I would urge people, don't incur that legal risk mm-hmm. without darn good reason and think through ahead of time, ahead of time, before you're facing that threat, under what circumstances you'd be prepared to incur that legal risk. A, a lot of what we need to do in, in terms of making sound decisions, legally sound and tactically sound decisions in self-defense, is to thought experiment these scenarios ahead of time. Yes. Uh, we can't foresee every factual variation of, of some kind of criminal aggression, uh, but most of them tend to fall into common buckets. They tend to be armed robberies, they tend to be rape attempts, they tend to be carjacking. So in a generalized sense, you can have buckets of scenarios where yes. you might think, all right, in this bucket, I'm just walking away. In this bucket of threat, maybe I'll use pepper spray. In this bucket of threat, maybe I'll go hands-on. In this very limited bucket of threat, maybe I'll prepare to go to a gun. And in this tiny bucket, maybe I'm prepared to actually shoot someone Absolutely. in self-defense. But to the extent you can put those scenarios, those infinite area scenarios in those buckets, it really facilitates sound decision-making in the crisis of the moment when you're facing that threat and mm-hmm. you have to make life-changing decisions for that other person and for yourself. Um, it really facilitates your ability because you know, all right, I'm in this bucket. This is not a gun bucket. Mm-hmm. This is a pepper spray bucket. This is a, a, a jujitsu bucket. Yes. But then a circumstances change. The person displays a weapon. Oh, now we're in the gun bucket. Yes. Right now we're in the deadly force bucket. So instead of having to think through a thousand different scenarios, you just have four or five buckets of scenarios where, where you have kind of uh, prepared mm-hmm. uh, self-defense responses that you know are legally sound because you learned the legal principles and you've studied all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so you know you're on solid ground. And frankly, I think that also helps people. I do the legal stuff, right? But the priority has to be winning the physical fight. If you don't win yes, the physical absolutely. fight, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. That's correct. But you don't want to win the physical fight in such a way that you spend the rest of your life in jail. And I think by learning the legal stuff, it, it facilitates your ability to be decisive in mm. the tactical phase, mm. to make, to strip away ambiguity from these scenarios, make decisive decisions, be more effective in the physical fight because you know you're on solid legal ground, as solid as you can possibly be because you've thought the, through these issues beforehand. Absolutely. Um, hey, Don, if you would um, follow up and or cover from what Andrew's talked about, proportionality and how that becomes challenging with some of the cases that we have, you know, shooting a certain amount of rounds or, you know, how it's challenged. Well, I think the bedrock underlying principle of proportionality is that you are entitled to respond with the same amount of force that you face, which yes. means that if you're faced with non-deadly force, you can't respond with deadly force. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is, I think, is knowing where you are in this continuum. Mm-hmm. And as Andrew just mentioned, this notion of stripping the ambiguity is a process where you're trying to figure out what's actually going on. You know, we get a lot of cases that start as, you'd call them motorist, road rage mm-hmm. type cases. And they're otherwise pretty law-abiding people that somehow get crossed up, tempers flare, mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it even means that both motorists pull off, get out of their cars, or one motorist gets out of the car and approaches the other car. And now everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. Well, that's such a difficult situation, I think, legally, emotionally, tactically, because you don't know what their intent is. You know it's emotional. Mm-hmm. You know they've decided to take it to the next step when they get out of their car. And when you get out of your car, are you making things better or worse? Yes. So you have to figure all of that stuff out before you know if you're facing any kind of real threat or does the guy just want to get out and you know give you a piece of his mind and shake his fist and argue with you and tell you to go to driving school? That's right. Or is it getting worse and worse and worse and pretty soon you see him reaching into his pocket or you do you see something that seems like a clear 
escalation and the risk of a weapon being introduced. I don't think there's clear answers that you can say in this situation, you know this is going to happen because people often are angry, they're unpredictable, one thing leads to the other, mm -hmm. so your response may make it worse, your response may make it better. There have been cases that we've known about from the media where both people get shot That's right. and die. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just wild out there. So um, I would really like for Andrew to talk about a scenario like that, mm -hmm. when you're trying to assess the situation, not just tactically, but legally as well, to protect yourself, make things better, not worse, of course, with the underlying goal is nobody gets hurt, especially you. Right. So, as you say, where, where, where I see people get into trouble legally is, and tactically, uh, is, in, is in what I call the zone of ambiguity. So on the extreme ends of the use of force continuum, there's generally, it's not very complicated. So if, if there's no threat, we just go about our day, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if someone steps out of a doorway a few feet away with a raised machete and comes at us, that's not a complicated legal or tactical analysis, right? Mm -hmm. You just solve that problem. It's in the middle where it's not necessarily clear what's going on on multiple dimensions. It's not clear if they're a threat. If they are a threat, how much of a threat mm -hmm. on this issue of proportionality? Um, but often there are things that can be done if someone's thought through these things beforehand to strip away that ambiguity, to have a sense of, well, what do I need to be looking for that will let me make more decisive decisions? Because yes. what a lot of people do is they just get scared and they panic. Mm -hmm. And if they panic, especially if their only defensive tool is a gun, they panic, they get scared, they pull the gun. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the only thing they have. And often they pull it under circumstances where, frankly, it's not lawful. They're not obviously facing a deadly force threat against which the gun would be appropriate. They end up charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. They've never been in trouble with the law a day in their lives before. They're looking at a 10 or 20 sure. year felony. And they don't necessarily have any appreciation for what, how that act of pulling the gun is going to affect the other person who's not posing a deadly force threat at right. that point. Well, pretty soon now that person's facing a deadly force threat. Yeah. You can see how it spins out of control. And they call the police. Mm -hmm. They call the police. Even if they were a bad actor, by the way, you'd think criminals wouldn't call the police, but, <laughs> yeah. but they do. Exactly. You know, you know it, and it's funny that, that, that you talk about that. We, we give out tips all the time, and, and guys, remember, you know, we always talk about, you know, if you are a victim, proceed like a victim. Call 911. Even the person leaves the scene, you know, because if he or she calls 911 first, they're going to be seen as the victim. And now you have to undo and make yourself the victim and not the suspect. So we make sure that you do that. Also, we were talking about tactics. You know, I, I taught, I'm also a SWAT and I taught, you know, tactical classes many times in my, in my years as a police officer. One of the things that we actually discuss, especially when it comes down to road rage, the way that you set up where you stop at red lights, different things like that, you know, make sure that you don't pull right next to another car. You pull back so that you have an avenue to be able to maneuver your vehicle out of the way if there was a carjacking or for some reason somebody, um, you know, approached you and forced some type of aggression, um, you know, trying to get you to get out of the vehicle and, and such. Give yourself an out so that you make sure that, you know, you give yourself the opportunity not just to survive the fight, but to remove yourself out of the location. So that's really, really important. So now we're going to like quickly talk about Don, um, and, and you brought it up. We, we have a lot of members that mistake being scared for being threatened. Right. Okay. Can you guys cover that? Because like, you know, you know, being you know, fearful of someone endangering your life and just being in fear of some type of physical attack or just someone yelling and being aggressive. And, uh, you know, when, when I talk about that, we're talking about aggressive panhandling and stuff, stuff like that, where people just move into your space and or began yelling at you and such? Well, j just being afraid is, I mean, fear is not really required for self-defense. Apprehension of harm is what's required for self-defense. And you have that subjective state of that. So yes. there's some emotional state that you're in. But it also has to be objectively reasonable, meaning mm -hmm. it's not speculative. It's not for all I know he has a gun or for all I know he has a knife. You have to be making your decisions by applying your powers of reason to evidence, things you're observing. And, so and, you, and what you mean by that is like bulges, you know, you can see a hand over a knife. Someone's reaching out. for their waistband yes. after having verbalized a threat. Thank Someone you. is closing proximity on you after you've told them to stay back. Uh, someone's attempting to get into your car when your car is otherwise secured against entry. 
those are all things that are evidence of their aggression. Yes. That you can articulate to other people that support an objectively reasonable perception of threat. Uh, a mere irrational fear of threat is not enough to support a claim of self-defense. But people need to know what to look for. Mm -hmm. And if you know what to look for, you can also, frankly, position yourself where that person, if they're going to escalate, they have to do it by hitting triggers that are the evidence for your reasonable perception of threat. So, for example, if you're shouting at someone to stay back and they continue to close proximity, I love verbal commands like that because... Not because I expect the other person to comply. That's mm -hmm. up to them. I have no control. Yeah. But it strips away the ambiguity, right? If you're uncertain about whether someone's a threat, you're allowed to yell at them to stay back. That's yeah. not a crime Absolutely. for you to do that. And if you do that and they continue coming closer, mm -hmm. what you've effectively done is you've compelled them to either stop doing what's scaring you mm -hmm. or to act in a manner consistent with the threat based on actual evidence that you've observed that you can articulate to other people. That's stripping away that ambiguity. Absolutely. And the other thing that, that, that Andrew's hitting upon that you guys have to really think about is the fact that verbal commands are also heard by people who are nearby. So they can mm. tell that you are the victim by the way that you are pushing out the information. You know, it's obvious that you're saying stay back, you know, all of those things that helps your case, even if you don't know someone's watching. So it's very important to use verbal commands to do that as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, in, in most good guy cases of self-defense, they, they don't tend to get into trouble because there's too much evidence in the case. Mm -hmm. They tend to get into trouble when there's too little evidence in the case. And so the situation looks ambiguous to police, to prosecutors. Generally, we want more evidence. Famously, in, in the George Zimmerman trial, they, the prosecutor, uh, the, the investigator uh, lied to George and said, well, we have camera footage of what happened in an effort to get George right. to you know, confess to something. And George's response was, thank God. Thank God they have camera footage so mm -hmm. we'll, they'll be able to see exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. We all, if we hear people shouting, what do we do? We turn our head to look to see what's going on. We want witnesses. We want that camera footage. If, of course, presuming we're acting actually in lawful self-defense, we want more evidence uh, because that'll be favorable to us. Uh, and verbal, listen, if I ever have to defend myself, I'm going to be screaming like a little girl. I want as much <laughs> attention as I can possibly get. That's right. And maybe, maybe someone will actually come and help you too. That would be nice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you don't have any control over that, but they certainly can't come and help you if they don't know you need help. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily limit that to just putting your hand up and saying, stop, don't come any closer. Even in a stand your ground jurisdiction where you can legally just stand there and meet the force with the force. You might also consider backing up Mm -hmm. Taking a left, going around the car, yeah. getting some Cover, distance. Cover obstacles, more anything to complicate, more complicate their apparent mission to her. Yes, and get you more time right. to see whether is this in fact someone who is a real deadly force threat to me or is this somebody that's um, maybe just crazy but not actually violent or also, drunk or lost or just any number of human frailties that could put them in a situation that would initially appear threatening but upon closer examination, which you can only get from time and distance, uh, allows you to really process it. Yeah, time and distance are life. I mean, that translates directly into life. So the more that you have, the better off you are. Mm -hmm. And you want that person to work for the opportunity to hurt you. You want them to work for you having to use force in self-defense. And the more they have to work for it, the more it looks like self-defense on your yeah. part. And if you don't do that, you also run the risk of being made to look like a mutual combatant, uh, where you were offered an invitation to fight. Just think of a traditional fist fight between two guys and want to settle their differences, right? Mm -hmm. They're both mm -hmm. agreeing to fight. If you have the opportunity to retreat, to put yourself so there's a car between you and the other guy, and you can do all that with complete safety, and you don't do that, mm -hmm. a prosecutor is likely to argue that, listen, maybe you were offered an invitation to fight, but you accepted that invitation. That's right. And as a mutual combatant, the law says you're both aggressors, mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. both lose the privilege of self-defense. So it's always important to keep in mind not just what you're actually thinking or actually intending, but how your conduct might be made to look to other people if it's described, especially if it's described in a deceptive way by a prosecutor. And how much comfort would not moving, retreating, uh, avoiding be in a stand your ground state? Don't you have the legal right just to stand there? Um, or are you still at some legal risk if the prosecutor points out avenues of escape or opportunities to avoid that you don't take advantage of even though you aren't legally required to do so? Right, so most of the stand-your-ground states are what I call soft stand-your-ground states. Mm -hmm. There's a seven or eight that are hard stand-your-ground states. 
Um, in the hard stand or ground states, the jury's actually told they're not allowed to consider the possibility of retreat in your claim of self-defense. It's mm. just off the table, period. But that's a minority of the stand or ground states, a small minority. In most of the stand or ground states, the prosecutor is not allowed to tell the jury that you had a legal duty to retreat, because you don't in a stand or ground state. But what they are allowed to argue to the jury is, sure, ladies and gentlemen, this defendant didn't have a legal duty to retreat. We're a proud stand or ground state, but he could have. Mm -hmm. and a reasonable person mm -hmm. would have. Yep. And therefore, his failure to retreat when he could have with complete safety is unreasonable. And of course, reasonableness is one of those required elements so of self-defense. backdoor that in yep. to undermine the reasonableness of what you did, even right. though you didn't do anything illegal. Correct. We'll continue the conversation, but before moving on, I want to just kind of talk about something that, that you're doing for uh, the industry in general, like some of the in instruction and stuff that, that you have coming up. Sure. Well, we actually set something up just for CCW Safe members. Okay. It's, about, it's an hour or hour and a half long webinar on self-defense law topics. So those of you who are interested in that, and that ought to be all of you, uh, can get that. It's completely free. doesn't cost a penny, uh, but we wanted to make it available to the CCW Safe membership. And you can take advantage of that uh, by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash class. And that'll take you to that webinar. It's scheduled at different times. Just pick the time that's convenient for you. And I think you'll get a lot of value out of that. Awesome. Don? You know, Andrew, I want to talk briefly about we are a mobile country. People can travel from state to state. We have permitless constitutional carry states. We have reciprocity uh, among those states with, uh, that issue carry permits. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what happens when you're traveling from one state to the next and you may find yourself in an unfamiliar jurisdiction in terms of the laws of the elements of self-defense. Yeah, so of course you're bound by whatever the self-defense laws are in whatever jurisdiction you use the force, and they could be very different uh, than the laws in your state. Um, a lot of states have fairly liberalized self-defense laws. Uh, other states are much more rigorous. The biggest variance is this element of avoidance. The biggest variance mm -hmm. is whether or not you have a legal duty to retreat, uh, and how much of a legal duty to retreat you have. For example, we already talked about soft standard ground states versus hard standard ground states. <clears throat> and we actually, at Law of Self-Defense, we produce state-specific courses for all the states. So if you wanted to learn it at that level of detail, and I encourage you to do that, we're, mm -hmm. we're happy to provide you access to that class. But what I encourage people to do generally, because most people are not going to memorize 50 states' worth of self-defense laws, what I suggest is the most prudent position is adopt the most conservative legal position on self-defense, you can, and then you're lawful everywhere. So if you're mm -hmm. in Texas, Texas mm -hmm. is one of the hard standard ground states. The jury's not even allowed to consider the possibility of retreat in evaluating the reasonableness of your self-defense. Forget it. Mm -hmm. Just pretend you're in Massachusetts, no matter where you are. <laughs> yes. Pretend mm -hmm. you are in the most aggressive duty to retreat state that there is. And if you adopt that position, because even then, the duty to retreat only applies when you can do it with complete safety. You're not mm -hmm. required to increase your jeopardy to try to get away. But if you adopt, my, my self-defense strategy incorporates that I will always retreat from the fight if I can do so complete, consistent with safety, mm -hmm. then you're legal everywhere on that mm -hmm. issue of avoidance. So you don't have mm -hmm. to worry about what state you're in. Yes. If you're in Maryland, if you're in Massachusetts, if you're in New York, any of those duty to retreat straits, you're in compliance. And in every other state, although you'd have a legal privilege to stand your ground and use force to meet force, if you don't have to, if you can escape doing that with complete safety, not increasing your jeopardy, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, that's just the prudent thing to do. Again, we, we ought not be getting into fights that we don't need to be getting into. Mm -hmm. Well, I can certainly say, having defended a number of self-defense cases, that while you may not have had a legal duty to retreat, if you clearly make some efforts to de-escalate or mm -hmm. avoid, whether it's retreating or something that makes it clear that you don't want to actively engage in this uh, use of, of deadly force, the prosecutor, the police, the prosecutor will weigh that heavily in their charging decision. First of all, if they see someone who, in their view, did the best they could to avoid it, mm -hmm. but they wound up using their weapon as self-defense, they'll factor that in, and you may very well not be charged in a, out of a scenario where if you didn't do some of those things, you would be. Right, so fundamentally, prosecutors know, at the end of the day, they have to sell their narrative of guilt to a jury. Mm. And the harder you can make the sale of that narrative of guilt, 
the less likely you are to get convicted, the less likely you are to be prosecuted, the less likely you are to be charged in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you want to conduct yourself in self-defense in such a way that you're providing the prosecution with as few building blocks for a narrative of guilt as possible. You want to look like a hard story to sell to a jury because they don't like to take hard cases to trial, mm. all other factors being equal. Most prosecutors have conviction rates of trial of 90%, 95%, and that's largely because they get to pick the cases they bring to trial. Mm. And they have mm -hmm. plenty of easy cases. They have plenty of drug possession cases, cases where it, it's just a walk away conviction when they go to trial. If you look like a hard case, if you look, as we say at Law Self-Defense, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, mm -hmm. know the law so you're hard to convict. That doesn't mean by learning legal tricks, we don't teach legal tricks, mm -hmm. but by knowing where the actual legal boundaries are and staying within them, you make yourself hard to convict because you make yourself hard to sell that narrative of guilt to the jury. And if you look like you're hard to convict, you look like an unattractive target for prosecution. So if the prosecutor can't say he didn't kill him because he had to, he killed him because he wanted to, mm -hmm. right. when you have made an effort to get away, when you have done certain things to attempt to de-escalate, but you just couldn't, right. you just had to defend yourself, that makes that argument a whole lot harder. Absolutely. And let me turn that around just a little bit further. If you summon aid for the person you just shot or help them yourself to the degree that you can, uh, consistent with your own safety, right. provide some medical care, yes. that's also going to factor into that argument that they can't make. Well, he wanted him dead, so he, mm -hmm. he figured out a way that he could claim stand your ground and yeah. get away with it. Right. If you don't at least call for aid and, and you, you've, you've used deadly force, you shot someone, man, that looks awful. And prosecutors will talk about that all day. Mm -hmm. Not only did he shoot this poor kid, he just watched him bleed out. He didn't even get mm -hmm. help for him. So absolutely, I always tell people, when you call 911, ask for not just the police, ask for an ambulance too. By the way, you may need an ambulance yourself. Oh, yeah. If you've been in a real fight, you, you, you might not know you've been seriously hurt. Mm -hmm. um, but again, as we talked earlier, you don't want that person to die. Yes. If, if they don't have to die, if, if they can just be neutralized as a threat consistent with safety, you want them to live. It reduces your legal liability. And it takes away from the prosecution that argument that you were just just a cold-hearted monster who just wanted to kill somebody, which is what they will say uh, if you don't call for help. They do it all the time. Which is a good reason why your social media doesn't suggest things like that. You don't have accessories and modifications or hats or t-shirts that suggest you're coming into this with that frame of mind. Yeah, let me circle back to that because that's a really important point. Uh, in terms of actually providing care to someone yourself, that's a tough judgment call. I can tell you the only reason I ever would have shot someone is they were just trying to kill me. Yeah. If they were just trying to kill me, you know, when professional EMS shows up in the scene, they don't go near that guy until the cops have secured the mm -hmm. scene. So mm -hmm. if the professionals are not willing to approach and provide care, I would be hesitant to approach and provide care. Now, I, I don't tell people what to do or not to do, so everyone has to make their own call. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I hope to help people make informed decisions about it. Mm -hmm. So people have to decide for themselves. In terms of the social media stuff, the very first thing the prosecutor does in a case like this is grab all your social media, mm -hmm. everything forever. Stuff you deleted is not deleted. I get, I get evidence files all the time that are full of people's social media, all stuff they deleted. That's right. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's everything you've ever put out on the internet is there. Mm -hmm. And it's particularly dangerous to put stuff out there that can be made to look as if it goes to a malicious state of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can be subtle things. I mean, obviously, if you're writing, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, uh, the jury's going to hear that. That's right. Um, but even things like, like a Punisher backplate on a Glock pistol, mm -hmm. right? I see them. They're very popular. Who is the Punisher? The mm -hmm. Punisher, he's a cartoon character, but he's a vigilante. Yes. He explicitly uses deadly force outside the legal boundaries of the law because he considers himself above the law. That's right. Is that you? Is that who you think you are? Because Glock didn't sell you that pistol with a Punisher backplate on it. You put that on there. You're right. making a statement about your own state of mind. Mm -hmm. um, people engrave ridiculous things on their guns, like watch for flash and, mm -hmm. uh, and all this kind of nonsense. Man, that is going to be made used to make you look like a monster in front of a jury. And you have to remember, the jury wasn't there That's right. when you defended yourself. They don't know what happened. If they had any personal knowledge of what happened, they wouldn't be on the jury. They're a blank piece of paper. And they're hearing two stories, that, that narrative of guilt from the prosecutor and the narrative of innocence from your defense lawyer. 
Don't be giving the prosecutor building blocks of a narrative of guilt you don't need to be giving him. That Punisher backplate does mm -hmm. not make your pistol run better. That's right. It doesn't help you win the physical fight. Yeah. None of that engraving does. None of these stupid bumper stickers, right? Keep honking, I'm reloading, all that kind of nonsense. Yes. It will be used to make you look bad. And the prosecutors will use, if they've decided they want to take you to trial, they use everything. There is nothing they will not use to make you look bad in front of the jury. Absolutely. Well, and, and of course, as we've talked about already, um, the claim of self-defense is an affirmative defense that requires the defense to put on some evidence, or at least the record to contain some evidence of self-defense right. before the judge can even instruct on it and the jury can even consider it. So in my mind, what that means is, unless you get really, really lucky because of the way the evidence shakes out or there are witnesses there or statements that were made at the scene that become admitted into evidence, the defender is going to testify. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to get in front of that jury and explain what happened, what they were thinking, why they did certain things before, during, and after. And I tell you what, having defended a lot of people that are on that stand, mm -hmm. you want them to explain as little as possible and you never want them to explain their social media posts right. or why their gun was modified to say the very things that we're talking about. You'll be on that stand for hours, yeah. potentially, with the prosecutor mm -hmm. saying, did you write this on Twitter? Did you put this on Facebook? Yeah. Is this you? Did you say this? And they're going to try to make it look as negative as possible. Mm -hmm. And what will happen, practically speaking, is if you have enough of that nonsense on social media, your lawyer will tell you, listen, we can't put you on the stand. I mean, you'll just be destroyed on the stand. Yeah. And there may be things that can only be explained to the jury if you're explaining them. And now you've put yourself in a terrible catch-22 position. terrible, terrible position. Yeah. Hey guys, remember, um, this has nothing to do with coverage decisions. We're actually, because we're going to cover you uh, for your claim of self-defense. They're giving you this great information so that you don't make your, your journey through this, this mm -hmm. more challenging. Because it, it will mm -hmm. be, okay? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's really an important point. Uh, and uh, I mean, I love CCW Safe. I'm personally a member of CCW Safe. You guys are the only company like this that I work with. Um, but people have to keep in mind that nobody... Not CCW safe, not me, not Don, can turn a bad shoot into a good shoot. That's right. If you used force outside the legal boundaries, Don with National Trial Council, CCW safe will pay your legal bills, all that stuff, and, and you just go to prison. Yeah. Because you did it outside the legal boundaries. Mm -hmm. So uh, they'll do everything they can to help you, but they can't change a bad shoot into a good shoot. That's your responsibility. None of us have a time machine that lets us go back and change what you did. So you have to know where those legal boundaries are so you know you're within them. Even then, the risk of conviction is not zero. That's true. Uh, but you want to get it as close to zero as you possibly can, and then you can really leverage the assets that CCW Safe can bring to bear for you. Absolutely. Hey, real quick, I want both of you guys to kind of chime in on um, the importance of, because this is something that we do with CCW Safe, it's not just throwing money at lawyers, you know, after a charging decision. Explain the importance of, you know, uh, pushing forth information. We've done this on a couple of cases now where you push forth information. Uh, have a legal expert give an opinion to the prosecutor prior to a charging decision. Talk about that a little bit. Well, Andrew's actually been hired as an expert witness and has actually testified as an expert witness, mm -hmm. been qualified, which is no easy thing mm -hmm. to be able to be qualified, which means that you not only have the credentials that the person or entity hiring you, the defense in this uh, believes you're an expert, mm -hmm. but the judge also thinks you're an expert after you've been questioned extensively by the prosecutor trying to show that you're not an expert. So once you have gone through those obstacles and leaped those hurdles and you have been qualified as an expert, you are. Mm -hmm. And that means you can give your opinion and the jury's allowed to consider it along with any other evidence. So obviously there is great, great value in the use of experts, including uh, use of force experts, but mm -hmm. legal experts mm -hmm. as well. Uh, I think what we've talked about some here today is uh, the case is dynamic right from the very beginning. That's right. You can make it better, you can make it worse. Sometimes, as Andrew said, you don't have enough evidence to really stake your claim. Mm -hmm. Experts can help with that. They can clarify misunderstandings in the law. They can offer opinions about scenarios and reaction time and those kinds of things. And if you are involved early enough mm -hmm. with the funding and the qualified um, lawyers and investigators and experts, I do believe that there are prosecutors 
that are interested in listening, that are willing for justice to prevail. It may be selfish, they just don't want to get beat in court, but I do believe there is some integrity in the system. So by front-loading that, you may very well have an opportunity um, before charging, yes. not as much, because that happens fairly quickly, mm -hmm. typically, but certainly before trial, as the evidence continues to be developed and more investigation is done, there may very well be that window of opportunity before you seat the 12 people in the box that you can have a meaningful conversation with the prosecutor uh, about whether or not they really should go forward awesome. with the case. And Andrew, without giving too many details, could you uh, kind of go over, um, not that particular case, but how you were able to, um, you know, become a, a expert witness or discuss that case that you kind of went over? Yeah, so this was a, a murder case in Colorado. As, as Don says, I was qualified as an expert by the court. Uh, really, the prosecution didn't even try to contest my expertise. I mean, they, I was questioned in front of the judge for a couple of hours, and after that point, the judge was like, well, I mean, obviously, he's just an expert. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, then I testified in front of the jury for a couple of hours, and we secured an acquittal of that defendant on murder, manslaughter, and reckless homicide charges. He walked out of that court a free man. I, I do want to double down on what Don was just talking about, however. The, the, the greatest positive impact I generally can have is early mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my legal practice is a consulting practice. I don't take clients directly. All my clients are other lawyers who are lead counsel for their clients in charge of some use of force crime. And most of the work I do is, a, is an expert legal analysis early on, typically after charging, but before too many weeks have passed. Um, and we use that expert report, and we almost invariably get the charges dismissed, or at least the defendant put into a deferment program where they, they keep their nose clean for a certain period of time, the charges go away. Once the prosecution has kind of emotionally committed to mm -hmm. taking you to trial, it's very, very mm -hmm. difficult to get them to change their mind. Agreed. Because they've invested time, resources, reputation. They've told their superiors they're competent. They can get a conviction in this case. Mm -hmm. Almost impossible to get them back off. I have done it. I've done it in a murder case that was, I wasn't brought on until three weeks before trial. Did my analysis and then decided not to go to trial. The state mm -hmm. did. But it's really, really hard. It's much easier early on before the prosecution's made that emotional investment, that investment of time and resources where you can mm -hmm. really influence their decision making. It's part of why I think it's so important for people to be a CCW safe member because the moment something happens, they're calling you. Yes. And you guys are bringing resources to bear immediately. And that's the time you can have the most impact, the easiest impact in, in avoiding uh, that terrible fate of having to go to trial because folks, if we have to put you in front of a jury, there's at least, I don't care, you could be the most innocent person who's ever walked the face of the earth, there's at least a 10% chance you get convicted. That's just noise in the system. Mm -hmm. You do not want to be there defending yourself in front of a jury if it's at all possible to avoid it. And the best way to avoid it is to bring what's perceived as, frankly, overwhelming resources for the defense early on. Prosecutors are not accustomed to defendants who have a lot of resources. Most of the people they prosecute don't have any resources. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of resources, that again makes you look like you're hard to convict and mm -hmm. reduces the chances you'll be, you'll be prosecuted in the first place. You know, we really emphasize, I, I emphasize, and on behalf of CCW Safe, it's important to me that when we are engaging counsel on behalf of our members, that we hire an experienced lawyer, experienced in self-defense cases, because we've talked about today how different they are than right. the, the typical case, mm -hmm. and we hire somebody that practices every day in that community, people that have been in front of the judge, that have had other cases with the prosecutor, that know law enforcement, may have had other cases with law enforcement, have a good legal reputation, a professional reputation, and they go in this with a level of credibility that some guy from out of town wouldn't necessarily have. Yeah, there are and, a lot of discretionary calls that get made mm -hmm. by the cops, by the prosecutor, by the judge. You want the person representing you to be someone they have a good working relationship with because then they get the benefit of that discretion more often than they don't. Uh, if, if the judge does not like your lawyer, you got a problem uh, because those discretionary calls are all gonna go the other way. I mean, we, we've seen it, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, you, you want a local guy with a good reputation in the community. I think this notion of bringing in somebody outside to be a, a big profile counsel in your case is generally a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, because the judge knows darn well that that lawyer might try to get away with all kinds of stuff and he'll never be held accountable because he'll never have to appear before that judge again. Mm. That makes judges uncomfortable. Uh, judges, you know, they're masters of their courtroom. They want to know you have to keep yourself within certain boundaries of decorum, certain boundaries of truthfulness with the court, because you're going to be back in front of him again. Uh, 
that's what judges like, and that's what you should do. That's what you should look for in your lead counsel. And we're talking him as uh, all, yes, all of considering. I, I know yeah. some terrific yeah. um, criminal defense lawyers. Absolutely. In fact, we have hired several women criminal defense lawyers mm -hmm. that have done excellent, excellent work. We know good, good uh, women judges, so please don't think that we are saying we endorse men over women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't because um, there's a lot of good resources out there, but they aren't necessarily the guys with the biggest billboards or the ones that are on TV yes. um, touting well, Most themselves. of those guys don't practice law. <laughs> yeah. But most of those guys um, just farm out all the calls that come yeah, into different offers. It's important to me that we identify the, the local lawyers, the good ones, and then vet them to be yes. sure they've right. had the right kind of experience and that uh, they meet the other criteria for handling a serious self-defense case. And that's, that's another tremendous strength of CCW Safe because, frankly, most of the general public is is incompetent to evaluate whether a lawyer they're considering is, is good at his job. They, mm -hmm. they just don't know what the criteria should be. They don't know how to evaluate mm -hmm. a lawyer. So having someone like Don who can talk to someone you're considering as lead counsel, be able to, and for us, it's just having a conversation with the lawyer. I mean, it's just not hard, that hard to do. Uh, but to be able to vet that lawyer, because folks, lawyers like any other profession, they're on a bell curve, and most mm -hmm. of them are in the middle, and some of them are excellent. That's what you want. You want the really good ones. And some of them are just not good. Yeah. They're just not good lawyers. And you can't tell the difference. That's right. And by having someone like Don able to verify that, all right, this guy, mm -hmm. this guy's sound, professional, competent, mm -hmm. will zealously advocate for you. You're just not some cog in his office that's going to generate billables for him. He actually cares about your case. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a lot of criminal defense attorneys that just, frankly, they just crank to handle. That's defendants right. come in, defendants go out, whether they can convict it, as long as they're getting those retainers, they don't really care. Uh, that's not who you want. You want someone who's going to be a champion for your case. And Someone like Don can, can vet that for you, That's and right. that, can make, that can make all the difference. You're right. Hey, and real quick before we get to the next topic, and um, I would be doing you an injustice if I didn't talk about, you know, continuing education, and like I too am a, a member and a subscriber to Law of Self-Defense, um, because I, we, we don't know everything, and it's important for me to make proper decisions for you guys and to push you through it. I'm, I'm known for being a straight shooter, uh, and I'm talking about giving you the information that you need um, and I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to tell you what's going to keep you out of trouble. Uh, one of the things that I do just to continue what I learn at Law of Self-Defense is, is to be one of their, their platinum membership holders. You just kind of, real quick, I know it's not a commercial, but please explain what that means and what that, you know, how that can help them. Sure. So years ago, we would, we would provide a legal consult for any client who came into our office and, of course, had the money. The consults were quite expensive. They were a minimum of $10,000 and mm -hmm. usually substantially more than that. And and it sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but frankly, our clients would tell us it's worth every penny because almost all the time we got the charges dismissed. So one day they were looking at 20 years in prison, the next year they didn't have criminal charges anymore. Uh, what's that worth? Uh, we think it's worth our retainer, and so did our clients. But importantly, effective last year, we don't take outside consults anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a membership we call our Platinum Membership. Our Platinum members... Uh, are the only ones eligible for one of our legal consults. And they get it for free. Mm -hmm. There is no $10,000 mm -hmm. retainer. There's no cost to them. It's their benefit of being a member. But if they're not a Platinum member, and frankly, this applies to CCW Safe members too. If you're a CCW Safe member, that's great. That's what you should do. I'm a member. But unless you're also a Law of Self-Defense Platinum member, you cannot get my legal consult. We just, mm -hmm. We're just not available at any price. So I would argue the best position to be in is to be both a CCW Safe member and a Law of Self-Defense Platinum member. Uh, you can learn more about Platinum membership at lawofselfdefense.com slash platinum. But if you are ever contemplating, you know, if I'm involved in a use of force event, I've shot someone, I'm being charged with murder, I'd like Andrew to be part of my legal team, you have to be a Law of Self-Defense Platinum member for that to happen. Awesome, thank you so much. So back on topic, um, there were some things that we talked about over breakfast about uh, prosecutors going after uh, I want you to discuss brandishing. It's still in that area of display. We've had some cases where members, please don't do this, you know, take their gun out and put it on their dashboard or, you know, show the person, you know, like that. They're not pointing it at them, but angles matter. Talk about that, Don. Well, Andrew touched on earlier um, here today um, the discretion that prosecutors have. You know, it's truly exclusively the domain of the prosecutor to make a charging decision. Judges can't make a charging decision. Mm -hmm. The defense clearly can't make a charging decision. It's 
the executive function. It's part of the prosecution mission to evaluate cases and make that decision. It could be because they put their name on a paper and information, or it could be because they present information to a grand jury who ultimately returns the indictment, but based upon the information, and I would argue usually limited mm -hmm. information that they get right. uh, from the prosecutor, typically hearsay. Yes. Uh, it's not a, an adversarial process whatsoever. Back to your issue though, Stan, I have found, uh, and whether it should be or not, it clearly seems to me that prosecutors will, ex um, will exercise their discretion in brandishing gun pointing type cases mm -hmm. to some degree, depending on where the gun is. Mm -hmm. Is your hand on the gun? Is the gun covered? Is the gun at a low ready? Mm -hmm. Is the gun somewhere else? Or are you drawing directly at the person? Mm -hmm. Legally, it may not make much difference under the statute. Yes. It could, depending on exactly where you are. But in my experience, it does make a lot of it has a, a significant impact on the prosecutor deciding whether to prosecute for an aggravated assault type yes. case. And uh, Andrew was talking about a scenario where this sort of this continuum, when you're facing a threat and you're trying to figure out how serious a threat is, is it something where you may need to go to your gun and you're evaluating that, you're stripping away the ambiguity, mm -hmm. but there will be a process when you decide to touch your weapon in mm -hmm. some way. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little more about how you perceive what you would do as you're confronting someone or being uh, confronted by someone. Yeah, that, that whole notion of making someone aware that you have a gun for the purpose of changing their behavior. Uh, and as you say, prosecutors' offices tend to have kind of an informal tier of conduct where they're more likely to charge aggravated assault with a deadly weapon if you've actually put the muzzle on their person. Much mm -hmm. less likely to do that if it's at a low ready, uh, if you just have your hand on the gun, if you've just pulled up your shirt and displayed a gun, if you've just verbally made someone aware you have a gun. Any of those could be enough for an aggravated assault charge, but they tend to use their discretion not to go after that serious felony charge unless you've engaged in the higher levels of conduct, like mm -hmm. actually putting a muzzle on someone. The trouble is none of that's in the black letter law. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely their discretion uh, there's, there's nothing you can do about it if they want to charge you with that felony. The, the kind of the threshold they need to satisfy for you to be criminally charged with a serious felony is incredibly low, much lower than people think. Mm -hmm. It could be based on misinformation. I've seen uh, informations uh, that were filled out with stuff that was just lies, mm -hmm. uh, got people dragged into criminal trials. Yes. And later the lies are exposed, but it doesn't matter. Now you're a criminal trial. Yes. It, it, they don't rewind the clock because it turns out the information was, was corrupt in some way. Grand juries make their decisions essentially based only on the information they hear from the prosecutor. They only mm -hmm. hear one side of the argument, and we all know if you only hear one side of an argument, that side always sounds compelling, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the defense side of the argument doesn't tend to come in until you're actually at the trial itself, and you want to stop things before then. In terms of defensive display, I think there's, there are defensive display scenarios that are more legally defensible and others that are less legally defensible. And I think the more legally defensible ones are where you're perceiving a threat, and the threat's developing. It's slowly escalating. Imagine someone, a road rage incident. Someone gets out of the car, they got a baseball bat, but mm -hmm. they're, they're 50 feet away. Mm -hmm. Well, 50 feet away with a baseball bat is not an imminent threat yet. Correct. Yet. They can't reach you mm -hmm. with a bat. But they're yelling at you. You're the only other person there. You're clearly the target of their anger. Mm -hmm. Maybe their anger is imagined or mistaken or who knows, or maybe you actually did something. You didn't even know you cut them off, whatever. The important thing is not your state of mind. It's their state of mind. That's right and they're closing proximity with that bat. Mm -hmm. That bat, if they come close enough, is deadly force. Mm -hmm. You hit someone in the head with a bat, likely to inflict death or serious bodily injury. So if they continue closing, at some point, they will become an eminent deadly force threat. Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do, I would suggest, is, is like blindly follow the Tuller drill, the 21-foot rule, and just stand there doing nothing, and then when they hit 21 feet, you draw your pistol and shoot them. That's, there's, I think there's better strategies than mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. And that might be a circumstance where when they hit 30 feet or mm -hmm. 25 feet or 24 feet, you get your gun out. That's right. You make them aware you have a gun. Maybe it's a low ready. Uh, because based on those facts, unless they are deterred mm -hmm. from continuing the close proximity, they will inevitably be a deadly force threat. They're mm -hmm. going to develop into that, and then you will have to shoot them. You don't want to shoot them, mm -hmm. uh, either for their benefit or for your benefit, if you don't have to. So... At some point, you may want to display your gun. The, the strength you have there is you can say, your lawyer can say, 
hey, the only reason I displayed it was so I would not have to shoot him. When you're in that circumstance where someone is inevitably going to become a, an imminent deadly force threat who you'll have to shoot mm -hmm. uh, if they're not deterred, then display of the weapon is actually doing that person a favor. You're deterring having to shoot them. You're cautioning them. Hey, if you continue to close proximity, become a deadly force threat, you're going to get shot. I'm trying to save your life right now. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what your lawyer can tell a prosecutor mm -hmm. as well. Your defensive display is not malicious. It's not simply out of anger. You're literally trying to save this person's life. It's a good thing. Where people get in trouble is when they make that defensive display under circumstances in which that other person, as aggressive as they are, cannot reasonably be, be perceived as ever being a deadly force threat. There's mm -hmm. no weapon, mm -hmm. there's no disparity of numbers, so you would never be justified in actually using the gun in that circumstance, and yet you're displaying the gun. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors don't like that at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So, um, on that thought, explain to us and talk to us about the challenges of warning shots. We've had a couple of cases recently where um, that was a choice of one of, of some of our members. Uh, explain how they can get themselves in trouble and what that really means. So warning shots are almost always a bad idea. I can think of very few edge cases where a warning shot might be productive and maybe I can touch on those. Mm -hmm. But the problem with a warning shot is you're not yet, it tells the prosecutor, it tells a court, it tells a jury, that you were not yet in a circumstance where you believed you needed to shoot that person mm -hmm. in self-defense. Mm -hmm. Because if they were actually an imminent deadly force threat, that's what you would be doing. Mm -hmm. You'd actually be shooting them to yes. neutralize that threat. So you're not there yet. You're before that stage. And yet what you're doing when you're firing that warning shot is, folks, bullets don't miss. Yes. They never miss. Mm -hmm. They just keep going until they hit something. They may miss their intended target, yes. but they go on mm -hmm. and hit something. And if you're in anything like a residential community, there's homes, mm -hmm. there's children, there's mothers, there are fathers, there are innocent people everywhere. And a warning shot is literally uncontrolled. You mm -hmm. don't know where it's gonna go. And you may think, I'll shoot in the air, everything comes down, and they come down with lethal velocity. Mm -hmm. um, you may think, I'll shoot into the ground. Folks, I've worked cases where people fired a warning shot into the ground and it skipped up and killed somebody. Mm -hmm. And it was, they weren't intending to kill anybody. They didn't have, actually have a legal justification for killing anybody. Mm -hmm. and, and that's called reckless conduct. Reckless conduct is when you create an unjustified risk of death to others. You know you're creating the risk, and you ignore the risk and do it anyway, and then you kill someone. That's mm -hmm. a reckless homicide. That's mm -hmm. a form of manslaughter. The classic illustration for this is drunk driving, right? You go out, you get drunk, you get behind the wheel of the car. You're not intending to run anybody over. You're just trying to get home. But we all know driving drunk creates an unjustified risk of death to others. If you kill someone as a result, it's a manslaughter, it's a mm -hmm. reckless manslaughter. That's the conduct you're engaging in when you fire that warning shot. Mm -hmm. And I see that reckless um, endangerment charge, and it's a felony charge, folks. Mm -hmm. There go your rights forever. Mm -hmm. That reckless endangerment charge using a gun is a felony charge filed a lot in warning shot cases. Also cases where, where people shoot at dogs and things like that, where the prosecutor's like, eh, I don't believe that it was necessary for you to shoot at that dog because they're, they're, they're terrified that that round's gonna hit somebody, hit mm -hmm. some innocent person. And by the way, you ought to be terrified about that too, yeah. right? Uh, now, are there weird circumstances in which a warning shot may avoid that reckless endangerment risk? I guess if you're on a boat in the ocean, mm. right, and there's nothing for the bullet to hit, maybe. Mm. But in anything like a community where you live amongst other people, when you fire that round, it's reckless, unless it's justified. So when you fire the round at a person mm -hmm. who's attacking you, and it would be otherwise justified lawful self-defense, if that bullet, for example, overpenetrates and mm -hmm. goes on to strike some innocent person, mm -hmm. well, the firing of the bullet was justified in that circumstance. If it's justified, it's not reckless. But if you're not firing at the person, if you're just firing around to you know, try to frighten them, well, that's an unjustified risk of death to others. Uh, as we talked about, you haven't yet met the conditions to actually shoot the person in self-defense, and you're gonna be looking at that felony charge, and maybe, maybe you might kill an innocent person. That's right. You also run the risk that the prosecutor won't take your word for what you just did. Mm -hmm. You may characterize it as a warning shot. They may characterize it as a missed attempt to murder that guy. Right, That's right. right. Attempted murder. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I, I see that too all the time, by the way, in circumstances mm -hmm. where it, it, to my, I look at the evidence, I'm like, no, this is just, they just missed. <laughs> that wasn't a warning shot. I mean, the, the bullet holes in the wall, like six inches from where the victim's head was, yeah. right? They, they just, they're just a bad shot is all that mm -hmm. happened there. Um, and, and remember, just 
the, the people who are evaluating your conduct in self-defense were not there. That's right. They don't know what happened in any absolute sense. There is no truth in any absolute sense. The prosecutor wasn't there. The cops weren't there. You're not attacked while you're standing next to a uniformed cop. Uh, the judge wasn't there. Certainly the jury wasn't there. So all they can do is look at the evidence and try to make reasonable inferences from the evidence. And, and those inferences can vary depending on how they choose to review the evidence. So, you know, you may know in your head, and you may actually be right, that what you did was totally justified, but that's not what controls your mm -hmm. legal fate. So what's important for us is the model CCW safe so that we cover our, our members as much as we can. Those other organizations, they'll do what they say they're going to do, but we do just a little bit more. Um, explain the importance of our position on covering an appeal without costing the members another dime. Yeah, so this is a huge strength of CCW safe. To my knowledge, all your competitors, I could be mistaken, but I don't think so. To my knowledge, all of them, once you're convicted, they're done with you. That's correct. It's over. And... Again, you could be convicted and be completely innocent mm -hmm. on the merits. There's, as I said, there's at least a 10% chance that you get convicted, no matter how innocent you are. And if you're charged with a serious felony, especially a murder or manslaughter, just imagine what percentage of your resources you would use to avoid conviction in that. Probably everything, mm -hmm. to not spend the rest of your life in jail. Well, what happens if you're convicted? Uh, well, then you have an appeals process you can try to pursue. Although I caution, appeals are for losers mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in a number of senses. One is you're only appealing if you lost a trial, right? That's so right. you lost in That's that right. sense. Plus, the prospects of getting meaningful relief in an appeal is infinitesimal. It's less than 1% mm. of, of cases get meaningful release. And often, uh, often the relief is simply a mitigation of sentence of some kind. Or, or even if you, get, you win your appeal and you get your conviction reversed, which is huge, it's never reversed with prejudice. Mm -hmm. the, the prosecutor always has the privilege to retry you. Mm -hmm. And how many resources do you have for a second trial? After a first trial? After a costly appeal? I see plenty of cases where there are well-financed defendants in their initial trials get convicted, appeal, get reversed, they get a retrial, and they have a public defender for their second trial because they're, mm. they're dead broke. They, yeah. they don't have anything left. Your competitors would leave those defendants in the same position. Yeah. Even if they paid for the first trial, if they're convicted and they need to appeal, or what if they get a hung jury? Yeah. Half, one person on the jury believes they're guilty. Everyone else believes that, that, that it was justified. Yeah. Hung jury, retrial again. Those other companies, they cut you loose. Either you hit their cap or they cut you loose because you've been convicted. You have nothing yeah. for appeal. You have nothing for a retrial. I know my policy is the same as CCW safe. If people are a platinum member, my legal consult, if you get convicted mm -hmm. and are going to appeal, we provide the legal consult for the appeal. You get a new mm -hmm. trial, we cover it for the new trial. We, we continue to cover our platinum members until there is no additional opportunity for them to pursue justice in their case. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, that there are certain groups that are competitors that are tied into traditional insurance companies, which force them to recoup the money if there is a conviction. So you can't move forward until you pay them back the $150,000 or $200,000, and then they might be able to come back in and do something for you, but you have to pay that money back first. That's why we design ourselves so that we don't have to do that, because it's important that, I mean, we understand this is the, this is the second fight of your life. You know, the first was when you had to defend, to keep yourself from being killed. The second one is your, that for your freedom and, you know, your financial stability and, you know, what's going on with you. So we understand it's important to have those resources available to be able to do that. Um, I want to kind of get into real quick before we leave, Don, um, the last or the importance of taking care of people um, with counseling services, legal counseling services, and expungement. Because people don't understand that just because you get out of an incident, that doesn't mean that, you know, you won't be able, that people won't be able to get on Google and find, you know, that you've been charged with murder mm. and such and how that affects you. Well, from the counseling standpoint, I don't think anyone that hasn't been through a truly traumatic event can appreciate the the impact mm -hmm. of experiencing a traumatic event. I know that sounds circular, but yes. if you go through the experience of shooting someone, that is in and of itself traumatic, no matter how justified you were. And then you're going to have the trauma of being arrested and prosecuted, which is a whole separate set of trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's going to stay with you for the duration of the case. Mm -hmm. Now, longer. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, from a counseling standpoint, I think it's important to have someone to talk to that can help you begin to navigate the real world that you're living in. 
you may be on a an ankle monitor That's for right. two years yeah. while you're waiting for your case. Yeah, to, we've uh, had that. Yes. Um, and which, just is, which is expensive, by the way. People don't know. It's and, very expensive. Yeah, CCWSA pays for that, yeah. mm -hmm. too. So that can't be under understated, the mm -hmm. importance of that. And if you shoot someone and no charges mm -hmm. are filed because the system worked properly in your case, you still have that trauma. You're still going to need the counseling. That's right. And we're, we're there for that. Now, of course, some cases result in no charges, mm -hmm. but other cases result in, I mean, no formal arrest or charges or anything. Other cases result in an arrest, but no formal charges. Mm -hmm. And then other cases result in an arrest and a trial and an acquittal. Yes. All of those people would be eligible, given the jurisdiction where this happened, of some form of record sealing or expungement yes. to get rid of that public record. Mm -hmm. And one of the benefits of CCW Safe is that when you're eligible under the state law um, and the charges are dismissed or not brought, mm -hmm. and you are eligible to have your record sealed and expunged, CCW Safe does that. Absolutely. Okay, guys, uh, this has been um, valuable, valuable information. We do really appreciate your time. Uh, I want to thank Don West for coming up and, and visiting with us. Andrew Branca, of course, um, for coming into Oklahoma City to also sit down with us uh, for the podcast. Uh, could you please give your link for us, you know, because we, we are associated by affiliate as well. So if you don't mean as, as we go out, um, give them what your link is so we can have them follow that. Uh, so the one I would recommend is, uh, of course, we have tons of products and services, but I would, I would most recommend people take advantage of this, this free class we set up for CCW Safe members. Mm -hmm. It's about an hour, an hour and a half of this kind of content. That's right. It uh, doesn't cost a penny, 100% free, and you can access that at lawofselfdefense.com slash class. And for those that are not members yet of CCW Safe, um, to give your associated link as well there. Oh, um, I believe the associated link for people to come through me to That's you right. is lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And I don't, I think the discount code is law10, I think is okay. what it is now. And that'll get you 10% off your, uh, your CCW Safe membership. Awesome. Okay, guys, again, thank you for being with us. Uh, we're going to continue this in the future and be safe out there. All right.